about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Cody Pierce, and he'll be answering your questions on sheep's head on the fly in southwest Florida. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Cody a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column of uh, all the web pages. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Feedspot, Player FM, or any of the other platforms you might be using. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of these distribution platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now while you're waiting. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. doing it businesses Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Cody Pierce about sheepset on the fly in southwest Florida. Douglas Outdoors is a manufacturer of premium quality fly rods, raising the expectations that anglers should expect in componentry, design, engineering, craftsmanship, and in turn performance. Led by head rod designer Fred Contui, Douglas has achieved award-winning rods featuring eye-opening strength to weight ratios and dialed-in techniques, specific actions, and tapers that cater to a host of different species. Douglas Outdoors has a true deep lineup of rods, ranging from 12 weights to monster tarpon to two weights for tiny brook trout and everything in between. Check them out at douglasoutdoors.com. That's douglasoutdoors.com. Before we introduce Cody, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. On our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Cody's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link to fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a book, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question will be about something we talk about during the show. And you must submit your answer, along with your name and location, using the text box on our homepage. So listen closely. Use your best typing skills. Take notes during the show. And uh, maybe you'll be that winner of one of Stackpole's books. Our guest tonight is Captain Cody Pierce. Growing up in the southwest coast of Florida in Fort Myers, Cody has explored his home waters of Charlotte Harbor, Pine Island Sound, and Estero Bay reaches since boyhood. Guided by his father, who was a naturalist in his own right, he had a background in biology and herpetology that helped mold an adventurous and environmentally conscious steward of nature. Backyards vary across the nation, but for uh, a Lee Island Coast native backyards to us are wildlife refuges and vast expanses of coastal mangrove shorelines with turtle grass flats and oyster-strewn creek systems that mold a young man's spirit 
coming up in life so much that he knew he was going to be a captain from a young age. In his formidable years, Cody spent every opportunity available to him to learn the art of fly fishing and fly tying, being mentored and inspired by some of our area's most talented anglers, has yielded more than a decade and a half of fly fishing experience applicable to fishing in the South Florida. A lifelong personal study and admiration of these regions of flora and fauna, coupled with strong interest in local history, has aided him in the transition into full-time guiding four years ago. And to be a success in providing clients a safe, educational, truly unique experience and adventure in the Gulf Coast waters. Approaching his third decade in life, a true joy for Cody is teaching the art of fly fishing, uh, the saltwater, whether it be in person, on charter, at speaking event, magazine publications, podcasts, or grocery store, where everyone is important and matters. Cody, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Are you there? Yes, Roger. How are you? Good, good. Good to have you tonight. Well, um, I'm so glad that we were able to work out the bugs. I apologize, apologize on my behalf, but I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Uh, let me just uh, boost your audio here a little bit. You're a little, uh, little soft on me. Okay, um, let's see here. We've got lots of questions tonight. Um, the um, Some of you in the magazine article, in fact, in Fly Fishing Magazine, referred to you as the Del Brown of Sheepshead. We all know Del Brown was world famous for uh, his flies and, and catching permit in the day. Uh, so why did, why did they call you the Del Brown of Sheepshead? Well, that's a very good question, and I intend to give you a, you know, a humble answer to that. Um, <laughs> you know, upon some of the things that I was able to, to come about with fly fishing with, with Sheepshead, um, I think that that the amount of, of fish that were able to be brought to the boat over time just kind of, you know, piqued people's curiosity. It is an extremely generous, you know, compliment that, that they tended to use that term. Um, but I believe it's just that I'm starting to get a, um, a very good track record with these fish. And, and, you know, that was the case with Del Brown as well in, in his quest for permit. Are um, sheep's head considered... Uh difficult like uh, like permits? I believe they are. You know, it, it seems to be the accepted um, clause all over the Gulf Coast, anywhere that sheep's head are accessible. Um, they tend to be very smart, and, you know, they really look your flies over, so they're absolutely one of the toughest fish on the flats to, to get to eat feathers. That's for sure. What got you started going after sheep's head? I know, and I'm going to ask in a minute about other fish in the area, but... Uh, what made you mm -hmm. target them? Well, you know, a couple of years ago, everyone along the Gulf Coast at some point now has felt some changes that have come about, you know, in, in our ecosystems, whether it's from red tide or, you know, the Gulf oil spill some years ago, whatever the case may be, you know, part of being a guide that we're out there all the time, we get to be extremely observant. Um, I noticed that a lot of our redfish population for a while really declined, whether the fish moved out or had some type of, of problem. Um, the one thing that was made itself available on the flats was the sheep's head. Um, I would see them tailing at times. You know, I would see them on almost any oyster bar that I went by. I would see them on the beach. I would see them on the piers. So, you know, after a week or two weeks of going by them all the time with a redfish fly in my hand, I just started to cast at them. It, it really started that generic that um, mm. I 
saw a lot of opportunities, you know, while polling around and thought, hey, why not? There's nothing else to cast at for a while. So it just started as nearly that. That was what was available to me at the time. Um, it allowed me to perfect a lot of different techniques and, and really be intuitive with these guys. Um, I push pull with skip exclusively. So that gives me a lot of, lot of time throughout the day to look at fish. I watch them when they're feeding. I watch them when they're fleeing. You know, I watch them when they're tracking a fly. Um, I spend a lot of time observing fish behavior. Sheep's head are, you know, towards the top of the list. They're, sometimes you can spend a lot of time watching them. They're very busy no. fish. What, go ahead. Yeah, no, kudos to you because uh, it sounds like <laughs> you really uh, started from scratch with those fish. I mean, it wasn't like you, uh, you know, were uh, apprenticed to a guide that had been catching them for a while and uh, showed you the ropes. I mean, you built the ropes, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of the last few unexplored areas as far as fly fishing that my area had to offer. We're extremely biodiverse that we have an amazing tarpon fishery, a, a migratory, you know, spawning that, that's about to start. We have a great world-class snook fishery. We have great red fishing. Um, we've always had a lot of sheep's head in this area because, you know, the commercial fishermen have made a living and fed their families off it for many generations. Um, so these last 10 or 15 years as, you know, the art of sight fishing and inshore flats fishing, sheep's head, with the exception of during winter time, they don't get targeted hardly at all with the exception of, of land-based fishermen or bridge fishermen. So all these flats that used to hold, you know, great redfish, they, they have a lot of grass or oyster bars or mangrove islands, the sheep's head have gone pretty much completely unnoticed. So what I have as a benefit is that for the longest time, no one's targeted them. So a lot of these sheep's head, even though they're extremely, you know, smart, they're coming up on these flats um, from our nearshore gulf waters. They come up on the flats and they, they gorge themselves in place of what the redfish were doing, eating crabs and shrimp and marine worms right. and even bait fish. So, you know, just having this area and, and having fish that are happy, so to speak, you know, it, it really just, it, it kind of opened up into a wonderful yeah. opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, um, well, tell us, um, let's orient ourselves, because we've got people that listen to this from all over the world, and um, uh, kind of orient people geographically where you are in the world. And, you know, when you talk about, uh, when we're talking about southwest Florida, what does that mean? Okay, well, perfect. So we're going to, we'll start with a couple of our nearby cities. Um, just because most people are most familiar with names. So to the north of us, we're going to have Tampa Bay, which is one of the largest cities that Florida has. That's about two hours north of, of the Lee Island coast where I am. And then to the south of us, about an hour is Naples. So when you're looking at the map of Florida, most people key in immediately on Lake Okeechobee, which is the largest lake in the center of the state down in the southern portion. If you look due west of Lake Okeechobee on a map, you will find Fort Myers, Sanibel, Pine Island, Cayacosta, Captiva, North Captiva, Estero Bay, and um, Port Charlotte, Charlotte Harbor, which is um, the entirety of the waters that we fish here. So it's pretty much exactly west of Lake Okeechobee. So most people can find it, you know, by name, but also by water features. You know, where we are in the state, Florida has many, many biodiverse ecosystems. I mean, some are, are completely different just 30 minutes away. 
What makes mm -hmm. us special is that we are, you know, closer to the equator than the rest of Florida, obviously, but we have, more importantly, major freshwater river systems and tributaries that bring about an immense amount of nutrients. So everything to the north of us, even though it's all unique in its own right, we have the coastal front beach, which is where we fish tarpon and where the white sand beaches, you know, that you see on travel ads. That would be the outside to us. We have an inland sound system, what we call Pine Island Sound, which is all turtle grass, um, lots of little rookery islands. We have a large island in the middle known as Pine Island, and then east of that is where we start getting into some of the smaller creeks that at one time discharged a lot of fresh water from inland. Um, so our area has just so many different types of fishing, and it attracts an immense amount of life because of all these different water discharge systems that we have. So, you know, when we talk about our area, it really is one of the most special places in the world, and in particular, Florida. You know, again, when we start to get north, there's not a whole lot as far as the coastal beach. Every ecosystem is going to have its key species. But being able to offer all the nutrients that come out that attract the bait fish, you know, that have room for migratory fish, you know, that provide habitat for rookery islands, there's just there's so much room for growth. And, you know, it, it really is one of the coolest places in the world. Yeah. Now, where, you know, when you go out, guide people, where do you take out of? Okay. So in my area, the majority of guides are going to be, you know, out of a certain marina or something. Early right. on, I learned in my career that I had to be transitional. So I fish everything from Charlotte Harbor, which is the northern extremity of my area, which would be around Boca Grande, uh, Port Charlotte, Ponta Gorda. Um, I fish Matt Lachey, which is in between that. I fish Sanibel, and then the farthest south I'll go is Estero Bay. And I say that I fish those four because in a month I will at least launch once, if not multiple times, out of all four of those ramps any given okay. month. Twelve. So it just depends on uh, what you're fishing for, what the weather's like, uh, what the season is, uh, and, Absolutely. and then you take advantage of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we yeah. had you know from. Seriously, within 20 minutes of almost any location, um, we can hit a boat ramp, and we have over 80 miles of north to south coast, you know, excluding how far you can go inland, you know, to the east to explore. So I cover a lot of water, and, yes, it really does depend on the weather, but the nice thing about this is that, you know, if, if we're dealing with cold fronts from the north, we have areas to go. If we're dealing with those trade winds, trade winds from the east, you know, that blow across the state, we can still fish. So most of our areas are, are very appealing to fly fishermen. And, it, you know, it, it gives me a blank canvas every day that it doesn't matter really what the conditions are giving us, you know, somewhere I can find this fish. Yeah, because it looks like, um, I'm just looking at the map right now when I see Cape Coral there and Fort Myers, that's a huge river going up there, though. What's it called? But, the, the Caloosahatchee River, that's what that Caloosahatchee. is. Caloosahatchee, okay. Yes. Uh, okay. Is there any fishing up in there? Is... There is. So there should almost be an entire section just dedicated to the river. Um, the Caloosahatchee, you know, going back many, many, many years, you know, to the indigenous tribes that were here, um, the Seminole Indians, and also the Timucuans, which were before them and farther up in the state, that river 
really served as, as lifeblood many times during, you know, their seasons. It lended itself, you know, to, to use during the Civil War. Some of the first millionaires that were in Florida back during the cattle days, you know, the cowboy days of the 1800s, all made their living coming across the Caloosahatchee River. You know, for us, historically, it is one of the most important areas that we have. And as far as fishing goes, it has a lot of different types of environments in it. The river has changed many times, too, in the last 50 years, you know, from dredging, from water quality issues, from, I mean, all, all, all sorts of different things. But it does have some very cool, um, you know, fishing areas. It depends on the species you're looking for. But we can find sheep's head almost all the way up to our inland interstate, which is pretty far. Mm, okay, okay. So all these areas we've talked about here are, uh, you can find sheep's head? That's correct. That, uh, and there, there is a seasonal aspect of that too, right? I mean, it's not all year long, right? So that's the interesting thing about this is that seasonally is, tends to be when we get the, the largest quantity and also the quality. Um, sheep's heads, from what we know about them, they, they tend to spend, you know, a good part of their life offshore on nearshore wrecks. Um, you know, they're, I believe that they're a porgy, you know, they're a deep water fish, but during the winter time, when we, when our crayfish, you know, crabs, shrimp, all these different marine invertebrates are at their highest levels, which is during the cold season when bait goes away, um, is when these sheep's head come in to feed. So yes, we get the majority of them for probably four months of the year. Um, that just happens to coincide right before they go to spawn. They kind of stock up on food. But we can catch sheep's head year-round, and I do catch them year-round. Um, you tend to get the larger females, you know, when you get into summertime, but there's always, you know, those, like, 12 to 14-inch. I'm thinking that they're young males, but they're, they're around almost everywhere year-round. Hmm, okay. So they make, I mean, they spend most of their lives in these inland waters, but you just mentioned that, they might be out on deep water too, and just come in. I'm yes. kind of okay. Kind so of I'll try to about that. Yeah. No problem. Um, so the larger females, which are always going to be the biggest sheep's head that you catch, they tend to spend the majority of their life offshore. Um, they're the ones that you know really need the wrecks and reef systems um, to feed and thrive. We get those in, you know, four probably four months to six months a year inland when they're really in here, you know, feeding heavy and um, when they group up before they go to spawn. The males, which are the smaller um, sheep's head that we see around the flats, they're, you know, we can find them all year round. There may not be a lot of them, but they are still available to us year round. Um, the biggest mass of fish definitely stays offshore, you know, during the hotter times of the year. That's, okay. that's a Thing for sure, but I think that those younger fish, either if they're finding their own territory, you know, whatever the case may be, I, I see them um, just not in any large groups, and you almost never see them in schools. You'll see like a random single fish um, on structure inland. Okay, 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 Cody. We need to take a quick break here, and when I come back, we'll we'll dig in more and find out and learn more from you about these uh, sheep's heads. So. Uh, hang tight. I'll be right back. Looking forward to it. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. 
From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja after 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They are well-versed in fly fishing the beach, in kayaks, on pongas, and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Cody Pierce about Sheepshead on the Fly in southwest Florida. If you'd like to ask Cody a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately. We'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. So, Cody, um, I always ask my guests at this point in the show, you know, what's going on in your fly fishing world? So uh, toot your own horn here and tell us a little bit about your, your guide business down there. Absolutely. So, you know, just like everyone else in the country right now, um, we're all trying to adjust and to this event, life events that are going on right now. Um, I'm still able to say that I'm staying pretty busy despite all of this. Um, we're going into, into our spring season right now. So what that means for us is a water temperature increase of around 10 to 15 degrees. Um, water temps are staying consistent around 82 degrees, which really wakes up these tropical fish down here. Um, we're seeing a lot of tarpon starting to move into our inland waterways that pretty soon will start showing themselves on the flats as they get ready for their annual spawn into Boca Grande. We're seeing a lot of really nice redfish that are going with the south winds that we have this time of year. When we get a south wind, south wind with an incoming tide, we get a much higher tide, which blows in a lot of uh, bait fish from offshore. So it really excites up the fishing. Um, we have giant Jack Crevels right now, you know, getting up towards the 25-pound range. Fish that size is around 36 inches. On a fly rod is a lot of fun right now. They eat poppers really good. We're still seeing some pretty decent spotted sea trout, you know, and, and we're just looking forward to a really good tarpon year. I'm thinking that, that this year with the amount of fish that have showed up this early, the amount of bait that's around the next couple of months, you know, hopefully everything goes smoothly and people will be able to travel soon if we can get through this uh, pandemic right now. But yeah. tarpon yeah. is looking really good, and, and it's, you know, it's taken a lot of the, you know, the other thoughts off of most of us right now. You know, all the guides here are very excited for tarpon season. Um, it means a lot to us, you know, fiscally, but also, you know, personally. It's, it's a great time to spend with, with clients out there, crystal clear water. Um, it's just an exciting time to be to be down here for fly fishing. So yeah. we're all fine now, still. Go ahead. What's your website address? Where, where can people reach you? They can reach me at www.saltwaterbackcountry.com, and that is saltwaterbackcountry.com. Saltwaterbackcountry.com. Uh, yes. And uh, we did have a, a question that came in from Matt Fugazi in Colorado. He wanted to know how far in advance you'd need to book uh, a, you know, a guide trip with you for Sheep's Head. Um, right now I would say that you know, there's not going to be a lot of 
need for in advance. We've had so many cancellations because of, uh, right. you know, the current events. I'm not shy to say that. You know, everybody's having to experience it right now. So the sheephead fishing would stay really good until about April. Once April happens, that's when those fish tend to push offshore in the big um, schools, and that's when they spawn. So, you know, right now we would oh. not need much advance, oh. but usually two weeks to three weeks. Okay. So, yeah, he may be talking next year at this point, you know, trying to plan a trip for sheephead to, to hit the prime Absolutely. season. Absolutely. Sounds like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, the good thing is on a boat, you're six feet apart, uh, which is <laughs> good social distancing, but uh, but getting somewhere right now is another problem. So, uh, yeah, it's hurting the whole it industry. Is. Yeah, It is, but, you know, on a, not to get sidetracked here, Roger, but the good thing is is that I see a lot of people being, you know, quite ingenious with what they're doing with their time, you know, from tying flies to tying leaders to casting in the yard, you know, spending time with the kids and the family, like, I'm you know, in some ways, this was really good to see that, and it's going to spark, you know, some really good innovation and, you know, excitement in the yeah. fishing world. As soon as they can get out there, they're, they're going to. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah, and, uh, you know, thinking about, ask about fly fishing, well, we've got over 300 shows to listen to, so that's, mm -hmm. uh, what, over, over, that's like 500 hours of Fly fishing, you can listen to. So uh, uh, th there you go. There's something to do if you if you can't get out at all to fish. But uh, yeah, got to make good use of the time. Actually, you mentioned it. I just I just uh, built in a uh, a new fly tying area here for myself. So uh, mm -hmm. during this this time. So you know, hey, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. But let's get Absolutely. off of that. Let's talk about fishing. <laughs> and try okay. to get our minds off for the next hour, you know, and uh, <laughs> and do what we can to uh, to get away from it for a, a few moments anyway. Um, well, good. So people, and, you know, I, I was going to ask you, you know, you, um, of course you're targeting sheep's head with your clients, but you mentioned tarpon, uh, you uh, redfish when they're around, snook, uh, and these are all different fishing methods too, right? I mean, snook, I understand you can go to Sandbell Island and, fish off the beach for snook at certain times of the year. And um, uh, the, the kind of fishery you described is just seems so um, expansive and diverse that um, it just offers so much, it sounds. It really does. You know, this entire area is, you know, we're really blessed to have such a diverse fishery. You know, and when we talk about snook, there are many different types of approaches and presentations that we can do to you know, to catch snook. Um, I try to catch them, so there's two main transitions that happen with snook here. For the wintertime, they tend to spend their, their time in deeper canals, deeper water, inland rivers, places that the temperature in the water can be more consistent. So that, for us, that's going to mean dark bottom, silty bottom, um, you know, way up into the freshwater rivers where it's deep and it's kind of insulated with the sand. And then the opposite of that is during the summertime, usually May, June, July, sometimes into August, um, those snook are all congregating at, at the gulf passes and the beaches. That's where they spawn. So my main approach for snook is that I target them on their transitions. With that being said, usually, you know, we got our first good snook, I think, like three weeks ago of this season already. 
I start at the end of February, which is the coldest month for us here. And then as we get into March, at the beginning of March, it heats up very quickly. Those fish all start to leak out of those those winter retreats. Um, so they start to get on the flats. You know, they'll sit along shorelines or at creek mouths or wherever wherever it is. Those key points that you find them when they first come out of their winter retreats, those fish are absolutely hungry and they're what we call green. Green meaning that they spent their entire winter in a deep canal where no one really bothered them. When they come out for those first week or two, especially when they get into small schools, it can be very, very exciting sight fishing them. I try to tend to, to only target them through this period here because when they're spawning, I want them to be able to do what nature intended and to make more snook. So I will fish them for a short period, of, you know, which is for me is going to start at the end of April. Usually if we get blown off the beach from tarpon fishing, I'll say, hey, let's go look for some snook. Um, I'll find them around the outsides of the passes. But on the opposite end of this, once summer starts to kind of dwindle down, when we start hitting September and October, September, October, November, we go through a period where our bait is at its absolute highest. That's usually when all all the scaled sardines, which is what we call white bait, threadfin herrings, which are what we use for big tarpon, um, Spanish sardines, silver sides, blood minnows, those are all at their highest because they've spent all the warm period of the year eating. Um, when we start to get into that fall pattern, those fish eat with such ferocity as they intend to put on body weight before they go into their winter times that if you can catch it when they're coming out and when they're going back, you tend to have a much higher success rate. And more importantly, I'm not interfering with the most important or most critical time in, in their lives. You know, fish live for one reason. Oh. It's to, go ahead. Yeah, to procreate, yeah. Uh, um, so, so spring and fall primarily for, for snook. And tarpon is uh, pretty much the Florida season down there where, where spring is really good for tarpon as well? Yes, yes. Um, you know, as we get into their spawning time, which is now, um, that those fish are starting to head towards the passes, and it'll last, you know, probably really good, probably till the beginning of June. There's a couple-month windows there that those tarpon are at their heaviest and it's the same thing. That's the best fishing of them for the entire year. That goes for adult tarpon. Juvenile tarpon are starting to show up right now. That's my main bread and butter is fishing tarpon that are 40 pounds and less. There's a couple of reasons for it. You know, they, they tend to, to be more forgiving. Um, you know, every little tarpon you let go takes off with ferocity. You know, they can, they're air gulpers, so they don't really run out of oxygen you know, as quickly as a big fish would do, and there tends to be less predators. So when you release the fish, you don't have to worry about a shark attacking it or something. Mm -hmm. um, so the smaller fish are what we what I target mostly, and they show up as soon as it warms up, and they will be here until the very last, you know, bit of somewhat warm weather, which can last into December. But the main part of the summer, um, juvenile tarpon, especially, you know, an hour after sunrise and an hour before sunset, we call that the golden hour, you can have some of the most incredible action, you know, throwing poppers and topwater gurglers um, and streamers. Yeah, so it sounds like you're, you've got a lot of uh, different opportunities. So if something else is off or off season, uh, there's something else to go after in your area. Uh, that's, that's correct. Excellent. Yeah, okay, good. Um, let's... Uh, 
Describe the sheep's head uh, in your area, the fish itself. We do have the picture of you and one of the sheep's head on, on our website. But you know, when, you, when we originally talked sheep's head and I, I looked at that fish, I go, well, that's not the sheep's head that I know. And because I uh, went to college in Santa Barbara, California, and did a lot of diving off the Channel Islands, I was thinking of the California, and I'm going to say it correctly now, sheep head. <laughs> because that's a much different fish than sheep's head in Florida. Um, mm -hmm. So, and I didn't know that till today, till I was looking it up. But uh, <laughs> uh, I thought they were one and the same. They're not even in the same uh, family, I don't think. But, uh, but anyway, tell us about uh, your friend, the sheep's head. Okay. So what we know as the sheep's head on the Gulf Coast, and it goes all the way up to the Atlantic. You know, it is very similar in stature to the sheep's head that you have on the West Coast. It does share some resemblances. Um, the sheep's head that you know on your coast is on my bucket list. It is, it is an incredibly beautiful fish. But the sheep's head yeah. that we know that's on our coast, you know, that's in Gulf and Atlantic waters, um, they're going to have vertical black and white stripes that go down the length of their body. They are a type of porgy. A porgy is, is a, a bottom species that we have here. They're, each porgy that I know of is, is pretty unique in their own right. Um, you know, these sheep's head here, they tend to have almost like human-like teeth inside of their mouth, hard crushers to them. Um, they can be caught offshore. They spend a lot of time in deep water, but they tend to stick around structure of any sort, whether that's dock pilings, bridges, oyster bars, you know, sunken boats, anything that has something that they can pluck from. Um, they share a lot of same tendencies with parrotfish in the way that they feed, and similar to some triggerfish as well. They tend to go up to whatever it may be, grab a hold of it, and yank it right off of its perch. <laughs> so, okay. um, no mercy, huh? <laughs> no, absolutely. There is no mercy with them. Um, one thing that, that I've learned on watching these species, and it's the same thing with um, parrotfish and triggerfish, is that these guys, you know, they're of a different intellect as far as, as fish go. And what I mean by that is that when you watch fish species, something like a Jack Crevel or, you know, um, even the giant GTs, those guys are always super busy, very high speed, just, you know, with the thought process perhaps of mine, 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 you know, just eating anything that's in their path. When you get into to sheep's head in particular, they are visual feeders. They look at everything, you know, they don't miss details. They look through pilings, you know, and they can pick the exact barnacle they want off. And I'm, I'm imagining that they do this because you can watch them pick the tiniest little barnacle or oyster off of a, a piling with, you know, pinpoint accuracy. The same thing goes with crabs. Everybody knows that sheep's head like like crabs. Everyone that's along the Gulf Coast from Mississippi, you know, all the way up to North Carolina, fiddler crabs are the first one that come to mind. Um, if anyone's been able to watch a sheephead eat a crab, it's one of the most astounding things you've seen. They don't go in and just eat the prey in one bite. I've noticed that they'll go in and dismember a crab starting with his claws. You know, they take away his defenses and then immediately afterwards they go for the legs. So that way the prey can't get away. Um, you know, a fish that does that, that, that's able to sit there and attack a prey like that with that much accuracy just absolutely has all of my attention. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I, I've been very lucky to see permit feed on the flat. It, it is a mythical creature. It, it's beauty in its own right. 
Um, but I've never seen, you know, the curiosity and attention to detail that you get from watching Sheep's Head. Um, now, Sheep's some Head, people you, may you mentioned. Go ahead. Um, some people, you know, are probably laughing at this about, about watching sheep's head. The number one thing I hear from guys is, how do you even get close enough to cast at them? You know, that, that's going to come later on in this conversation. But um, yeah. when you really watch them, you learn that, that, that each one is a character in their own right, you know, which is yeah. special for because, you know, we tend to not have that type of appreciation or understanding that some fish are, you know, more special than the other fish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, you mentioned the Gulf Coast. They're through the Gulf Coast over to, what, Mississippi, Louisiana. Um, mm -hmm. And they're, and they're it, all around Florida, um, around the whole state. Yes. And up the East and Coast. And I believe that they, I, I'm sure that they're in Texas, too. I know that they're in some parts of Texas. I've never fished up that far. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, they're from Texas all the way around the Gulf Coast. Every part of Florida has a sheep's head at some point. I mean, as long as it's on the Gulf or the Atlantic side, somewhere yeah. there's a shed. They can tolerate. Uh, uh, yeah, hopefully some of the information you, we talk about tonight will help people find them in their area. Maybe they didn't even realize it was an opportunity, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so this might open that up for a lot of people. Um, yeah. uh, we did get a, a question in on the Internet here uh, from Phil in uh, Kentucky. He wanted to know what the average size of a female sheep shed is that you catch in the, the Sanibel area there. Yeah, so, you know, and this is just a guesstimate when I'm, you know, as, as far as the gender that goes. I'm not actually, you know, the only physical way to know that would, would I imagine, would be to probe them, um, just like you do with reptiles to see if, if it's a boy or a girl. Um, there's a kind of a scientific way to go about it. I'm not doing that. But the general size that I believe that are the females, you're going to average around 13 to 14 inches. Um, so that's anywhere from a four to an eight-pound sheep's head as far as the bigger females that are inshore. I've seen them, you know, up to what I would imagine would be 12 pounds. You know, I've seen some very big ones in there, but on average I'd say six pounds would be a good staple, which is a hardy size sheep's head. Yeah, okay, okay. And uh, uh, I had a question from Matt uh, Fugazi in Colorado. Uh, he wanted to know if it's the sheep's head is related to the saltwater drum uh, and the freshwater drum, and also do they travel into the brackish water areas? Okay, um, so I'm not quite. I don't believe that they're a drum. I could be mistaken about that. I should know that. Um, but as far as them traveling into some of the brackish water systems, absolutely, they're going to tend to go into the brackish water systems that have heavy flow. Um, not so much like the stagnant lagoons. You know, if they're going to go that far into the freshwater realm, they definitely need that tidal flush that comes and goes. It may not be as often as, you know, the tides that are closer to the coast, um, but I have absolutely found them when there's very little, um, you know, oysters on, on structure. The farther up you go, for instance, the Caloosahatchee River, you'll tend to notice less and less Oysters that are growing on pilings, sign pilings, bridges, oysters, or mangrove shoots, any of that sort. When they get up that far, I believe that those sheep's head are feeding on one of two items. Well, actually, maybe three. There's a lot of uh, clams that are up there. We have a couple different species of clams in our region. So I know that they feed on clams. There's always areas of shrimp that are up some of those creek systems. 
the shrimp that we have here can tolerate extremely high levels of fresh water, surprisingly, because of the amount of algae growth that's in them. So that's a secondary food item for them. And thirdly, I've noticed that on that more freshwater side of the freshwater rivers we have, that you tend to see a lot of juvenile crabs in there as well. I mean, in a very healthy population of very small blue crabs in particular, um, I think that's what attracts those sheephead that, that tend to go up into brackish water. But for the most part, you can find your most consistent numbers and the greatest, you know, um, quality of fish the closer you are to the Gulf. That tends to be, a, you know, the truth <laughs> almost yeah, all the um, time. Brian uh, Daly in Georgia wants to know, he said, uh, can you shed a little light on the options for those of us in the boatless community? Can these fish mm -hmm. be accessed from by shore yeah. bound anglers uh, who wade uh, fish exclusively? Yes. Um, if you're wade fishing, then absolutely. You have even more options than others. Um, you know, in particular, wade fishing around docks, you know, there's a lot of shallow areas that, you know, Georgia has a lot of inland flats, too, that I know of. Wading around those docks, fishing the vertical structure of a dock piling, especially when those docks go out there a ways, can really lend itself to, you know, to catching fish. You know, fishing around the oyster bars, which is where I tend to spend the majority of my time, absolutely will have sheep's head on it at some point. You know, if you're seeing your other species there, you know, like redfish, trout, black drum, you know, flounders, then you know there's life there. And as far as the land-based fishermen, you can do this as well. You know, we'll get into technique. The, I would like to, to say that, you know, this deal with, with the sheep's head on fly, I've been extremely lucky that I stumbled upon this, and a lot of it, is, of it has been because of observation. You know, there's, there's a lot of stigma that goes around with catching a, a sheep's head on fly. You know, some guys in some states are, you know, are very good at it as well. I'm not you know, saying that, that I'm God's gift to, to fly fishing with this. I've only been lucky enough to be observant and to kind of put some puzzle pieces together. So when we go in, and that's leading into the technique for this. Um, when sure. we're going into this, I tell my trout guys and trout, you know, clients that come in, basically what we're doing is nymphing. At some point, we're going to be nymphing. And I say that because of the approach that we use with sheep's head. They are methodical feeders, whether it be on vertical structure or on the bottom. Nymphing, you know, has the benefit of being able to keep your presentation inside of a certain level in the water column at almost all times. And then you use some sort of a strike indicator. In my instance, I like to use the shooting head of a floating fly line, usually a bright head. Um, you know, with a bit of fluorocarbon, so that way my fly is fishing a certain water column level that I wish it to be. So this is going to apply for the guys that are fishing off a of shore. If you're walking along, you know, a shoreline, a shoreline or a seawall or along a dock pier, anywhere that you have a linear structure, um, you can fly fish because you don't need a lot of room for back cast, and then you can present your fly to any bit of structure. If it's the pilings, you can hit individual pilings, or you can do swaths through the pilings by casting the fly under in between the pilings, letting it sink and drop it through. So I hope that answers that, that yes, there is opportunities yeah. for land-based anglers, and there's opportunities for kayak fishermen, wade fishermen, um, you know, this style will apply to pretty much anywhere that you can see the bottom.
Okay. You know, and okay. it apply in places that you can't see the bottom as well. But in general, okay, we'll talk. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that in a few minutes. I got to take another break here, Cody. So hang with me, and we'll be right back. Talk about some equipment that you might want to bring down there with you. So um, hang tight. We'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market, as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I have ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kickboats, I'm convinced that the Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Cody Pierce about sheepshead on the fly in southwest Florida. If you'd like to ask Cody a question, just go to our homepage. AskAboutFlyFishing.com. Use that Q&A text box to send us your question, and uh, we'll try to get it answered uh, as quickly as possible on the show tonight. Let me just check here real quick, Cody. Um, uh, yeah, so Phil's asking about weight rods, and okay, so um, yeah, that's next up. Equipment. Um, what weight rod would you suggest one use, or what weight rods? Uh, plural, because. Uh, if a guy was going to come down or a gal to fish with you, um, what do they need to be prepared for, being that there's uh, you know, not only uh, the, um, the sheep's head, but these other tarpon, you know, reds, uh, you know, snook, what should you be geared up to, to, you know, for down there? That's a perfect question. Um, you know, in general, our most universal rod that we're going to use, period, is going to be an eight weight whether that's an eight-weight floating line, which is my personal preference that makes up three-quarters of, you know, the boat rods that I keep in stock. You know, an eight-weight tends to do everything. You can still fish it on some of the smaller, more, you know, finesse-type approaches, but it, it will also handle a large snook, you know, a pretty decent-sized tarpon and large redfish. So eight-weight is probably your most safe bet if you were to have one rod to take care of every action. You know, there's really very little difference between bumping down to a seven weight, say, if you were trying to be more stealthy. Each fly line is going to be a different grain weight, depending on, on if you're going with a tropical line, you know, a bonefish quick shooter or a long head, that I tend to, to just try to make a longer leader to solve that problem. So I'm going to say an eight weight, absolutely. And if you need something heavy to try to conquer tarpon or something like that, um, a ten weight doubled as a good inshore and tarpon rod. And the reason for that is that during the days, you know, anytime we mention the word fly fishing down here, the wind picks up. Sometimes it gets really windy. <laughs> Having a ten weight fly rod will just give you that that extra oomph you know, to make the cast into a headwind, it just makes fishing much easier during rougher conditions. So I would say somewhere between an 8 and a 10, or if you like odd numbers, 7 and a 9. That's what I tell people, you know, and, but really an 8 weight will pretty much do everything. You know, when it's tarpon season, we'll, we'll have a tarpon rod. So 
yeah. to answer that, I like an eight. It's going to do okay. a couple of very important for me. It's going to handle bulky flies. You know, fishing sheep's head, we use a number of different prey um, presentations, whether it be shrimp flies or bottom flies, crab flies, and sometimes bait fish flies. By having an eight weight, I can throw a bonefish fly just as easy as I could throw, you know, a very large crab pattern for larger sheep's head. So I hope that that, that will help with, with choosing a rod. Um, you know, so when we get primarily, in, uh, primarily floating lines? Yes. So when we yeah. get it, yeah, when we get into the lines, I use a, a floating line for almost every application. Um, with an intermediate line, as far as it, it appeals to, to sheep's head fishing, we could use this in the instance known as dredging. Most guys are familiar with dredging for tarpon when they're in deeper water. It means throwing an intermediate line or a sinking line, um, you know, just blind casting and retrieving the fly. If you were to use an intermediate line for sheep's head fishing, this would, would be applicable to darker water, you know, murky water, and deeper water where you can't sight fish or if you're just trying to prospect. If you're going, you know, if you're in Georgia and you have a certain area you fish for redfish but you know there's some sheep's head in there, um, if you were to use an intermediate line, that's a great way to go out and, you know, do some cast, put in some time, and probably catch a sheep's head. But let's get back to the floating line. A floating line is going to serve more purposes that are on the pro side than the con. Most of the sheep's head that I'm fishing, you guys have heard me talk about structure. You know, structure is everything. Again, if it's man-made stuff like bridges and pilings, or if we get into things like oyster bars, um, all of that has a tendency to cut line. So I like my fly line that costs 100 bucks or whatever it is, you know, to stay safe. So I use a floating line, and that's the base reason why I choose it, is that it just tends to keep it out of harm's way. Um, mm -hmm. when, we get in, when we get into, you know, throwing bottom flies or crab flies, the floating line doubles as a strike indicator. We don't need to put a float or a, you know, I don't know what the other thing's called, a parachute, but we can use the shooting head of the fly line as it's floating to, to tell when these fish take the fly or, if, you know, if they hit it or drop it or whatever the case may be. Um, having the floating line at your disposal just you know, is that much more important and helps you out through this process. So that's why I say a floating line at all times. Um, okay. This is going to get us into the next question. When we talk about leader and tippet, um, there's two stances that I take for fishing sheep's head, on structure or off structure, and I'll describe the second because we've already gone over structure. Off of structure for me in my general area on the Gulf Coast here is going to be either an instance like the beach where it's all sand bottom, no rocks, no trees, no nothing, just flat bottom. The second thing would be like a sandbar or a shoal, like a sand spoil, you know, in a river or along the causeway somewhere that there's a lot of water that, that keeps the bottom clean. And then the third part of that off of structure would be on a grass flat. So just like bonefish and redfish, sheep's head get up on a flat, especially when there's a lot of water movement, and they will graze. So that's going from, you know, one pothole or just skimming across the seagrass looking for forage. So by breaking it up into those two parts, um, a floating line is going to be able to complement both of them. If it's shallow water and the sheep's head are tailing, 
great. You know, I'm already ready to go. My leader selection um, will vary a little bit, but if they're on structure where the water is a little bit deeper and I'm sight fishing them, both of these cases, fluorocarbon um, will get you by. Fluorocarbon is best, you know, when I'm fishing oyster bars because it, it has a little bit more abrasion resistance and more importantly it sinks in the water column. If I'm fishing tailing fish on a flat, I will choose to throw monofilament. Mono floats a little bit better than the fluorocarbon, therefore I can sweep a fly over the seagrass without getting it hung up and catching a bunch of seaweed and muck and blowing my shot. So most of the time that that we're talking about the sheep's head for carbon is going to be, you know, my primary choice. Um, I tend about, to throw uh, a... What about the length of those leaders? What's your length so, of the leaders? What do you do for tippet? Um, that's going to that's gonna vary completely on what the weather is like. For instance, if we have a high-pressure day, like I know you have out west where it's baby blue skies, you know, and no clouds in sight, Obviously, you're going to have to throw a longer leader and probably a lighter tippet. You know, if your backdrop is, is bright, you can see every bit of detail, whereas if it's a little bit cloudy, it doesn't matter. Um, in general, I'm going to say a 10-foot leader. You know, 10 feet is a, is a good length to go with. I have gotten by with shorter, and I've gotten by with longer. But what I'm looking for is something that I can easily turn over and make the presentations. Um, so for me, I'm going to go with a butt section of fluorocarbon, usually on an 8-weight with a 40-pound butt, or if it's really windy, a 50-pound butt. What this does is it helps turn the fly over you know, quickly. Most of the fishing that we're doing, being at sight fishing, you have to have a very quick response. So the quicker I can get my fly turned over and you know, cast to the fish, the, the, more, the higher chances that I'm going to get the fish to eat. So I like a heavy butt section. Your midsection can, can be either 20, 25, or 30. And the class tippet, which is the last bit that we're using, is really the only one that's that important. Um, if I'm fishing them on oysters or around dock pilings, I go with 15-pound fluorocarbon. If I'm fishing these fish on a flat, you know, and they're tailing on grass and I don't have to worry about them cutting me off, you know, I'll go down to 8 or 10-pound test. Um, when you have very spooky fish, you know, there's nothing wrong with going down, way down to eight-pound test. There's a huge difference when you start getting from the diameter of regardless of manufacturer from that 12-pound area to you get to eight. Most guys in salt water, unless they're going bone fishing, never even talk about using eight-pound tippet. You know, again, some of these things that, that have proven and added numbers to this is is just, you know, trying to go outside of the box and be a little bit stealthier. I've noticed that almost all species will always react, you know, much more in your favor to a lighter pound tippet than a heavier. So with that being said, around structure, 15-pound tippet, fluorocarbon if you can. It will really go the extra mile in preventing cutoffs. Um, you know, but that, that's, that's my base leader system, you know, set up in length. When you um, when you're talking about cutoffs, are you more worried about the the oysters or the structure cutting you off, or is it their mouth? Do you need a bite tippet there at all, or is that not something you worry about? Well, that's really good. Um, so no, I'm not concerned with a bite tippet in any any shape or form as far as the sheep's head cutting you off. Um, yeah, I am okay. more concerned with the oysters and. 
Also, I've noticed that almost every sheep's head that gets a hook in them, it's incredible how quickly that they know where home is. They go right back to the bottom, and, um, you know, they they rub their faces on the bottom. They scrape their faces. So the few fish that we've lost, I have not lost a lot of fish to it. The few fish that I've lost, they have, when they're trying to rub the fly out on the bottom, whatever the angle of pull is back to me on the boat, um, you know, just happened to hit the edge of an oyster. Some, you know, some of the oysters here are razor sharp. So it's yeah. just you know, happens that they get it just right and it cuts it off. But in general, 15-pound fluorocarbon, you can pretty much pull them out of the oysters and, you know, get by with a couple of run-ins with, you know, whether it be sticks or oysters or whatever and, and survive it. Um, in between fish, you know, just like if I was tarpon fishing or permit fishing, I check my leader constantly. Um, I also check the fly a lot, too. When we go back to um, talking about how the sheep's head feed, and being methodical with how they attack a crab, for instance, um, they tend to pick apart the flies. You know, I, I've had a lot of times when clients are out, you know, and, and we make a presentation and we got a couple hang-ups, you know, flies get stuck in oysters and whatnot. Um, you know, usually 50% of the time the sheep's head was picking at it but just didn't eat the fly. You know, yeah. he was getting around to, to dismembering the crab or whatever it was and, and trying to eat it. So, yeah. Well, let's talk about that next, food and flies. So um, uh, give, give me another 30 seconds. I'll be right back, and we'll, we'll continue on. Okay, Cody? Awesome. Yes, right. sir. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. The organization provides grants to help with restoration habitats uh, like Wolf Creek in Idaho and Sands Creek in Delaware County, New York, and funds projects that collect valuable data about fish and their habitats, like the peacock bass study in Miami, Florida. FFI's core values remained unchanged uh, to serve as a strong advocate to fly fishing in all waters for all types of fish, and to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can enjoy these as one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts won't be nearly as effective without your help. If you're not already a member, we invite you to join the Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, community, and community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. That's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Cody Pierce about sheep's head on the fly. If you'd like to ask a question, Go to our homepage, fill out that form, send us your question. We'll try to get it answered here tonight. So um, we've got uh, uh, John Young was asking about gear and flies online here, uh, Cody. So uh, so let's dig into the flies here and uh, and see what we've got. Now you've, you've been telling us all about what they eat: clams and oysters and uh, and, and and crabs and all these uh, creatures that hide out in this structure and so forth. So what types of, uh, and Matt Fugazi asked too, you know, what types of flies are you using to, um, to, to simulate these, these animals uh, down there? Okay. Well, those are all really good questions. Um, a lot of the insight that I have has come from a lot of old-school permit fishing on fly. Um, the reason that, that a lot of the tactics kind of, a, kind of apply to sheep's head as well is that, you know, similar to permit, that they have a very, very wide variety of, of species that they forage on, on on all occasions. 
sheephead in general, you know, whether it's going to be crabs or shrimp, clams, oysters, bait fish of any sort, you know, if they have that many different um, prey items that are going to be on the menu, what I'm trying to do more importantly and as far as choosing a fly is that I'm not trying to mimic all, you know, whatever it is, seven or infinite amount of items that they will eat. I am trying to target one or two that I know that they eat with consistency. And for me, that's going to be crabs and shrimp. Um, those are the two most, you know, common and most successful prey imitations that, that I know of. That those are the two that I will always go off of. And we can go in depth with choosing an actual, you know, fly by name. But, you know, that's going to be my general rule of thumb is that I'm always going to approach the situation to, to try to feed them a shrimp or try to feed them a crab. You know, that this way you kind of work out some of those other things. I mean, I'm sure that someone out there, a very talented fly tire, could tie a sea urchin, you know, or tie a clam fly up of some sort. But trying to mimic those items that really only have the visual and, more importantly, the scent going for them as far as a food item um, it's very hard to, to present that, you know, when you're out on the water and trying to hurl that thing through the air. So yeah. I always go off of, of shrimp first. You know, shrimp we can find on the top part of a water column, the middle part of a water column, and more importantly, the bottom. We have a lot of, you know, what we call general bait shrimp, which would be a white shrimp. Um, you know, we have pink shrimp here. Those are all penates, which are... You know, the most common thought process of when someone thinks of a prawn or a shrimp, those are very common. They get flushed out of our inland system, so that's almost always going to be at the top of my list as far as a presentation. Um, secondly, with shrimp, then you get into the fossorial species, which means, you know, ground-dwelling shrimp. Some people are familiar with mantis shrimp, pistol shrimp. Um, we have rock shrimp down here. Um, there's a lot of different items for them, too. So what I'm going to do is that, first of all, you know, my conditions. If it's really windy, I'm probably not going to pick, you know, the lightest fly out there because the wave movements and everything, you know, will just obstruct the movement of the fly. So most of the time I am just going with whatever the weather will allow me to do. You know, if there's a lot of wind and a lot of current, I'm going to throw a shrimp fly that sinks to the bottom. You know, we have that option here that, that at all times during the year, some more so than others, but there's always one of those shrimp species that are available. So those are the two things that I start with first. Then secondarily, we'll be getting into crabs. Um, we have a boreal crabs here that, that live in the mangroves. They're called a mangrove tree crab. That's probably our most prevalent crab that's on the flats. The great thing about these, Roger, is that Oftentimes, you know, they're out on the edges of the mangrove limbs that they just happen to fall in the water. It happens all the time. So, you know, a lot of sheep's head have learned around some of these, these mangrove islands that when they hear that sound, the same sound that when you slap a fly down on the water, that it usually stops everything in their tracks. They almost always will do a 180 to see, hey, what was that? Um, you know, that's going to be the instance that I'll use a crab fly or if I'm fishing around like an oyster bar, it's kind of hard to present anything but a crab in an oyster bar situation because, you know, you know that the food items are all inside of the oysters. They're all living down in the crevices. That's why you see the fish picking at them and you see the fish patrolling the outside edges of an oyster bar. 
if they happen to see a little crab that just sinks from the surface and is going down into the rocks, you know, it catches everything's attention that's in that area. And, you know, most fish don't want to miss out on the opportunity for a meal. If it, you know, if it looks like food and, you know, it's probably food. Right. <laughs> so right. they usually, yeah. you know, they waste no time whatsoever to, to approach those. When we get into actual fly selection, you know, some of the names of the flies, a lot of patterns kind of are similar in stature. So there's some a fly pattern that came out of Texas years and years ago called a no-name shrimp. It was a craft fur wing with a palmered hackle body. It was a very simple shrimp tied inverted, which means hook point up with a small bead chain eye in the front. Um, you know, a very world-renowned fly tire, Steve Bailey in town here, had learned of that pattern many years ago, and he put his own twist on it. It's about two and a half inches in length, and on a number four hook, it does a very, very good job of mimicking a shrimp in its simplest form, but it also can fish the top part of the water column and, you know, kind of the mid part of the water column if you use a fluorocarbon. So as far as getting into the actual names of flies that I use so you can use these for, for information or reference, no-name shrimp is the name of the shrimp fly that, that I use in most situations. Um, when we get into crab flies, this is where things start to get a little bit different. Early on in my career, especially as a kid, I have been fascinated with inverted merkin flies. You hear that name all the time, merkin, 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 merkin flies. You know, they have more than proven their, their usefulness down in the Keys and southern part of Florida, all over the world now, chasing permit and bonefish. Um, you can flip them over and tie them with no weight and catch tarpon on them. I am a very big fan of this fly. So most of my early sheephead fishing, I started, you know, tying my own number four um, inverted merkins, just trying to match the bottom. Sometimes it would be green and tan. Sometimes it was, you know, all tan. Sometimes it was white. I just tried to mimic a crab, you know, to the best of my abilities with splayed hackle claws. This did catch a couple of fish, but it, it really didn't do, you know, an absolute killer job like what I would, what I had hoped for. Um, about three years ago, two and a half years ago, three years ago, uh, Drew Chicona Salty Fly Time started to, to really produce some of these contraband crabs. Um, he tied up a large order for someone, and I happened to see the picture one day, and I was like, wow, that is really cool. That is, you know, that's a very realistic crab fly. I, I never, you know, really saw something that, that looked that um, real, but more importantly, it didn't have or no other fly had the same sink rate that Drew had figured out, you know, by adding a, a belly weight to it of some sort. This fly, when it sinks in the water column, sinks horizontally, whereas almost every other pattern that's out there, especially permit fishing, you know, usually sinks at a 45-degree rate from the nose. By being able to sink horizontally, what I've learned is that you can basically parachute these flies for instance, if you find sheep's head on pilings at a dock, and you're, even if you're standing on the dock, you can still lay out a linear cast, that fly will give you, um, depending on leader, you know, heavier fluorocarbon will sink quicker than lighter fluorocarbon. So depending on what you do for a leader will adjust your sink rate. By being able to offer a crab to get it to hover as long as possible as it makes a perfect vertical descent, you know, it was like light bulbs. It, I just realized that it, 
it was doing everything that I really needed for, you know, for presentation purposes that being able to do that by offering either the no-name shrimp in those instances with shallow water where I needed it to sweep over grass or to, you know, whatever the case may be for shallow, everything else that was deep that I was sight fishing, after we had gone through these other patterns, I, I realized that fishing the contraband was a really big, um, you know, game changer. And a lot of that had to do, again, was with that sink rate. It just gave fish more of a chance to observe the fly. You know, it had a very natural sink to it. Most crabs, a lot of them do go down at a 45, but a lot of the crab species here, you know, tend to sink straight down. <laughs> they're they're yeah. a bottom crab as it is. They're not swimming crabs, you know, that the sheep's head are after mostly. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, good, uh, really good giving Drew uh, Chacon a, a shout-out there, too. We've had him on our show twice now about mm -hmm. tying uh, saltwater flies and uh, saltwater fly pattern development. So, folks, if you go to our archive, type in Drew Chacon, and you'll, uh, you'll find the shows we did with him, and you can connect with him if you want to see some of his flies, uh, his other flies, at topsaltwaterflies.com. So, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great tire. Um, Good, and we did have a, a question that came in on the Internet here, Cody. Um, Mike in Houston, Texas, he says, we chase sheepies here on the Texas coast as well. So that answers our question about Texas. Uh, and he was asking what your favorite flies are, which you just told him. But I guess they call them sheepies there. So um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but uh, uh, that's their, their local name. Um, and... Um, Let's see here. So we've got a few patterns, no names, contraband fly, merkins. Um, any others that uh, come to mind that are favorites of yours? So, yeah, so, you know, we I have caught sheep's head on a couple of different patterns. Um, there's been no consistency with it. So, you know, if I don't catch, you know, three to five fish on, on a specific pattern or, um, you know, a, a prey imitation, then I'm not going to consider it. You know, using these no-name shrimps and the merkin and the contraband, each one of those flies has well over 30 fish on them apiece, um, some more so than others. That stuff I'll keep to myself. But, um, you know, that these those flies are vetted. Those are, are, you know, they really have proven themselves. So I have caught sheep's head on bait fish imitations. Um, in particular, like the 3-inch finger mullet size bait fish imitations. But I don't... They were caught in the mouth, you know, they weren't snagged by any means, but, you know, it doesn't happen on, on a consistent enough basis that I'm going to say that they eat bait fish flies all the time. Um, it's happened only, you know, maybe three times. So I'm going to say that I'm going to stick with just the shrimp and the crabs because sure. I know they work. So the bait fish stuff, you may get lucky. You know, I've caught sheep's head on plugs, topwater plugs, but, again, there's no consistency to it. So... Yeah. No. Okay. So with, Good. Let's with talk about. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about where to look for for sheep. She said. Um, okay. You've talked about the structures and so forth. But when you're out, okay, we're, we're out uh, looking for sheep's head uh, on a nice day. Are you pulling up to these areas? Are you pulling flats? Are you pulling these oyster beds? And are you primarily sight fishing for these fish? Yes. So, you know, I'm going to be in an exception for this. I am a stickler for, you know, for doing things my particular way. Um, I push pole only, whether I'm fishing by myself or with clients. Um, 
I just think it's it's the correct way to go about it. I like being quiet. So everything I'm doing is going to be strictly from the push pole. Ninety percent of the fishing that I do is sight fishing, and I can explain my reason reasons why. Um, it's not that I don't like you know that I like the headache that comes along with sight fishing at times when fish are being tough, but more importantly that you know with everything I find that you know shots on fish like this it's basically a numbers game. Um, you know when we were talking about the fly selection, how I ruled out the other prey offerings because it you know I I didn't have any consistency with it by being able to push pull and cover ground and cover areas that that I found that fish that sheepshead are going to be on it increases our chances tenfold and the reason being is that as we're going along I've learned by watching sheepshead that the ones that are active that you can you know whether it's they're flashing or picking or tailing or whatever the case is if they're active on something you know, they have a much higher chance of feeding than a sheep's head that's just laying on the bottom or that just went swimming by. So I'm right off of the bat, I am cutting my losses by at least 50% because unless the fish is actively doing something, I am not going to engage it. I will just pass it by like I never even saw it. That is one reason why I've been able to get the numbers up like I do. When I go out for a day, I'm not wasting my time with fish that are doing something that, you know, isn't what I know. If it, it, it is an actual activity for that fish, I don't even bother with them. So where when I look for these fish, I like an area that's going to give me the most amount of of areas. So this is going to come down to like Google Maps or you know Yahoo or whatever that people use. You know, just scout around an area that you can find some oyster bars or you can find some grass flats. Um, you know, an area that has a bunch of dock pilings or something, somewhere that you, that you find some structure, um, especially if it's in an area that you can tell there's a lot, lot of water flow that's nearby, you know, an inlet or the beach or anywhere that there's just a heavy tidal flow is, is going to be an area that I would scout. Most of my areas I found, I'm not, I'm not shy to say, came off of Google Maps. You know, once I started to pick it apart, I was like, all right, well, you know, I find them on a gnarly, you know, mangrove branch shoreline where, from like a hurricane from a couple of years ago that had a lot of dead trees in there. I noticed on the high tide that they'd be up in there feeding. So, you know, I started to look around and, and found some nuances. So I would say that Google Maps will give you the best opportunity. I like to okay. push pull for You can use a trolling motor um, if you go about it the correct way. But the name of the game here, man, is a numbers game. The more opportunities you put in front of you, you know, the greater chances and the higher numbers you're going to start to see. A lot of people that go out, the few that are doing this a lot, you know, if they happen to see a sheep's head, then they'll, you know, they'll cast at it. The guys that are pretty good at this so far that are starting to add up numbers, you know, they'll go out and specifically target sheep's head. It's the same thing in my case. If someone's interested in doing that, I'm going to devote an hour or two of my time, you know, to put people on fish, to work these shorelines, to cover ground, you know, and all the while I'm encouraging my client that's on the bow and telling them, you know, that there's no reason we don't take the time to waste our time, not that it's not a blessing to be out there, but I don't want to waste my opportunities, you know, on trying to get a fish to eat that's busy doing something else, especially with these fish that are so finicky that, that are tend to be snobs you got to do everything you can to make sure you get a good opportunity. So, 
that would be one of my greatest tips I'd give to someone is just cover ground. And again, if you don't see them actively feeding, flashing, tailing, doing something that catches your attention, don't even bother with them. Go on and find something else because 20 feet over there, the other sheep said could be, you know, hungry and feeding just yeah. fine, whereas you saw three others that are just laid up. So, yeah. so um, talk about tide. With permit, we all know, you know, everything's about the tide. Is it incoming? Mm-hmm. Is it outgoing? Uh, changing? What? What? High? Low? So, what? What is it with with sheep set? Is there a particular tide that you like? Incoming? Outgoing? Yeah. Low? High? So, this is my approach for this, and I'd like to to make the statement too that that this sheep's head fishery that we have here, this isn't some kind of anomaly that's just for my area only. You know, I'm covering 50, 60, 70, 80 miles in my range that I'm fishing these fish. Um, as far as tides go, you know, of course, we're all going to have a favorite tide that, that where, you know, your stars align and things go together, but I'm a realist. You know, I fish the conditions that are at hand. The way that I think about a tide is if it's low, then I fish them where I know there's water that, you know, when the tide's high, I know what they want to be on. So to put that in, in, in simpler terms, that if it's low tide, I'm not going to spend my time fishing oyster bars. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to try to get on any real structure where fish will methodically feed. I'm going to tend to spend my time either out farther towards the beach, somewhere where there's deeper water fishing docks, um, docks really fish good. You guys have heard me mention that a couple of times. Um, that I'm going to tend to spend most of my time where there's more water and there's going to give me an opportunity to, to look for those key, you know, fish feeding grounds where I'm going to get that opportunity. So low water, it doesn't matter. You know, I can't say I have a favorite tide because the fish feed the same almost on, on any location. It just depends on if they can get onto the structure that they want to feed. Um, that's all simple in principle, but it's simple in application as well. When the tide comes up, then I start to look for oyster bars or I start to get on those shorelines where those fish can get up onto the structure and feed on crabs or oysters or whatever it is that they want to. So I hope that helps with a tide. Um, you know, I have not found that there's a, an in particular tide better than the other. On outgoing tides, I catch just as good as incoming tides. It's just about being on the real estate. Okay, okay. Um, uh, Matt Fugazi wants to know about uh, some of your presentation techniques. So tell us, okay, you know, we, we just saw some sheep set on an oyster uh, bar. Um, what do you do to sneak up on them and present to them? What's your plan? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll start with the, the vessel because that's whatever you're fishing off of, whether it's the seawall or, you know, a pier where you walk softly or a boat. You know, we tread softly. We take our time. You know, we try not to go against the waves to create whole slap, and we try not to make any real major um, movements on the boat. You know, anything like th- that includes the push pole. I'm very slow with when I take the push pole up into the air and then slowly put it back down to get you know another push of the boat. So that's first and foremost. Anything, any method that you're moving around, whether it's your own feet or a paddle or a push pole, you just have to tread s- slowly. That's the first thing right off the bat. Um, Secondly, there is something that I learned from a casting instructor here in Southwest Florida. Joe Mahler um, has taught me how to land a leader on a fish, and and this, you know, can have a a broad spectrum of benefits. Um, Basically, you can go out in in your yard, backyard, whatever it may be, set down an object. It doesn't matter if it's a bottle or a cap or anything, 
Um, I would practice, and I have clients do the same thing, practice trying to land just the leader on top of your object. Um, most of the time in sight fishing with salt water, it's your shooting head. As your shooting head lays on the water, water surface, whether it unfurls or it just kind of horizontally drops, it creates a big displacement. You know, anybody that casts on a, on a calm pond knows what I'm talking about. Being able to land your leader, if you guys watch your leader when it lands on the water, again, whether it unfurls or if it just lays out perfectly in a, in a straight line, the leader almost throws no disturbance whatsoever, and it's clear. So by being able to practice laying a leader across the target, you know, is going to greatly increase your opportunities to feed that fish. Sheep's head are all visual. Um, they do have really good um, senses of smell. That can be proven by the land-based anglers that catch them on, you know, on crushed oysters or clams or, you know, dead shrimp or whatever. So I know they feed on scent, but they have great eyesight. So being able to land a fly right on top of them, and that all comes down to just your cast, being able to feather it on top of them, um, puts your fly right inside of the strike zone, and you know it'll go it'll go much further than if you were to try to to lead a fish. You know, a lot of people have learned to lead fish, you know, by five feet or so. I have learned that when you do that, nine times out of ten, that shooting head just hits the water too hard and gives you away. So I really like that approach of just trying to lay the cast on top of them. I encourage you guys to practice that because I imagine even carp fishing that you'd benefit from, you know, being able to land the leader instead of the fly line next to the fish. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and what does the take look like then? You're, you're sight fishing for them. You put that uh, leader right in the right place. The, the, the fly is dropping. Uh, how do you determine the take and what do you do on the take? I'm going to use as, you know, for examples, um, you know, I think the, the real part of this, this whole process is being able to get other people to catch the fish. You know, no one really cares if I can go and do it, but being able to apply this to clients or someone that steps on the boat to teach them these little tricks and techniques to be able to catch these fish that, you know, they best describe it as a nibble. I've heard that from so many different clients that it's a nibble. So, you know, for that sake, I'm going to call the take as a nibble, and we'll explain why. With the sheep's head, again, when they eat a fly, I've never caught one where they just took the fly in one bite. I think that the majority of anglers that are trying to do this, trying to catch a sheep's head on fly, keep anticipating that, that at some point, you know, the sheep's head is just going to take the fly, and then, boom, you got them. Um, the nibbles are coming from, you know, that, that type of pick-apart, you know, accuracy that they have. They don't go into it and just eat the crab and get pinched and, you know, whatever else happens. You know, they pick the claws off, you know, and the crab's trying to get away, and they eat the, the legs off or the eyes, and then they take it. So the take that happens with these is, is going to be exactly that, just a nibble. Um, the way we go about this is that once the fish starts to engage my fly, when you feel, quote, unquote, a nibble, um, we're going to start little ticks little little um, bumps as we're pulling the fly line in, you don't want to do anything too drastically because those fish will blow up immediately. They realize something's wrong. But being once the fish is nibbling on it, being able to just give it a couple of little, you know, uh, 
strips in, just little bumps, usually we'll get that fish, you'll come tight on him as he's nibbling. That's the key to this, is trying to get, um, you know, a strip set in as he's starting to take bites out of it. So I hope that, you know, that's a lot of information. Um, I mm-hmm. hope that that will help explain it some, but it's the truth. Almost every sheep's head that you catch, period, will either be hooked in the lip, which is 90% of them, or if you have a really good sharp hook, sometimes you'll just barely catch them in the roof of their mouth. Um, I think the main reason for this is just the way that they feed. You know, again, earlier I made the statement that I am not God's gift to, to fly fishing for sheep's head. I think that, that someone that tries to do that is ridiculous. But being as, as observant as I've been able to do over these last couple of years has just, you know, those are the real secrets to this. It's not, a, you know, it's not a special fly, you know, some people, I've been watching them for so long to watch the way that they feed, they're very methodical, so you have to take that approach when you're fishing them, you know, you're not going to take long strips like a permit and he's doing 20 miles an hour chasing the fly, you know, these sheep's head, they're, they're taking little bits and pieces, and as they're doing that, you're just trying to get a little bit of a strip set to set the hook inside of the lip, or again, the roof of the mouth, and that's it. You know, over after over, you, over, if you miss them on the strip, let's say you think you've got the take, you do your strip set, you miss them, you just let it set. Then will they come and get correct. it again? And when I'm saying strip sets, you know, this is um, six inches at most of line travel okay. inwards. Not taking long strips. All I'm trying to do is that just trying to give it a little bit of movement so that as he's taking it you know, that when I give it that six-inch little strip in, that's plenty. You know, hooks these days are so sharp when they come out of the box. You don't need to to hit them with a lot of, you know, with a long strip set or a high-pressure strip set. It's just little bumps. The more subtle you are with it, the times that he doesn't get stuck, he'll come back and eat it again. Whereas if you give it a hard strip, you know, it's game over. They know know that, that something's going on. Okay, we're running out of time. Last question. Um, you're hooked up. What's the fight like? Okay, so the majority of these fish are going to make very, very hard runs that we call digging. They are going to try to get to the bottom. Um, they don't make very long runs as far as running out a lot of yards on the reel. Um, you can anticipate anything from 15 to 50 feet, but what you will get is a bulldog fight trying to pull them off the bottom, and they will not give up until the very last minute. And then even when they come alongside of the boat, just when you got them in your hands, you got to watch out for the dorsal fins. You know, they're a very impressive fish, and they give you every bit of, of their strength, you know. And more importantly, it's a witty fish. So having them on the line, going through this process, and actually hooking them and catching them, it's an incredible experience. Sounds like fun <laughs> to come down there and give it a try. Yeah, well, great. That. Well, we got to we got to wrap things up here, Drew. Um, I mean, Drew. <laughs> I was looking at Drew's picture on the on the on the computer here, Cody. Um, trying to, sure. we need to wrap it up here, and we we got to give away a few prizes here tonight yet. Uh, so um, uh, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Dying Journal, uh, and uh, and we're going to give away a book courtesy of Stackpole Books. Find out more about Stackpole Books. Go to stackpolebooks.com got a just a, a whole load of books on fly fishing so um, just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight take a minute and give us your feedback about the show 
You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what do you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. And now it's time to give away our prizes. So um, the winners uh, for our drawings are randomly selected from a show's registration database. And um, uh, if you are a winner, then um, we'll uh, uh, contact you after the show and connect you so that you can get your, your prizes. Um, the first prize we're going to give away is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. To learn more about FFI, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. And if you don't win tonight, join them anyway. Uh, it's a good, good organization to support. So our winner for that is uh, the database going here. Matt Fugazi uh, from Colorado. Matt's uh, I've been chatting with uh, via email, and uh, he's uh, asked many questions tonight. So uh, congratulations, Matt. Um, you just got a membership to Five Fishers International. And the next thing we're giving away is a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Time Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. Thanks to Amato, we're giving away this subscription. So amatobooks.com. And our winner for that is... Tom Berry in Ohio. Tom Berry in Ohio. So congratulations, Tom. I'm sure you'll enjoy that periodical. And um, uh, like I said, I'll contact uh, both you gentlemen after the show, and we'll get you set up to, to get that membership and subscription. So now we're going to do a giveaway. Um, and so whoever answers the correct question, I mean, the, gives me the correct answer to the question I'm going to ask, and then uh, you'll get to pick from a list of stackpole books that I'll send you. Uh, and you can browse that list and pick the one you want, and I'll send it out to you. So uh, lots, of, lots of great titles in that list. So um, let's see here. Um, the, uh, um, there are, oh, let me see. See if I can make this a bit more complicated. Um, uh, Cody referred to sheep's head as blank feeders. Blank feeders. Uh, tell me what he uh, what he was talking about there. What kind of feeders are they? And along with that, name one of the one of his favorite flies. Okay. So a two-part question: What kind of feeders are they? And um, uh, one of his favorite flies. So, so now, um, Cody, it takes a minute before they actually hear the question because there is a slight delay. Uh, and then they have to type in the answers. So we have to entertain them while uh, we wait. <laughs> well, That's no problem. <laughs> but uh, so how's your weather been down there? Well, the weather's been, been you know, a little bit back and forth. Right now we're dealing with a, with a hot spell. Um, you know, so it, oh. it's reaching 90 degrees right now. So the rest of the country, oh. you guys hear that? 90 degrees. Well, you guys are still freezing. <laughs> yeah, I was out chipping ice in my driveway uh, before the, the show tonight. So, <laughs> so yeah, big difference. I was hoping for 45 today so I would get some of the ice to melt. So, oh, yeah. well, I feel for you, man. No, we don't have any of that, but we have hordes of mosquitoes. Um, just oh. before I came this evening, I mean, I probably got a dozen good bites on me, so we do have that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, they're hatching away. Huh? 
I'm, so is there, uh, to, is there any any winter fishing available for you? Oh, yeah, in the tailwaters in Colorado here, yeah. A lot of people fish Very all year cool. round. I like to stay warm in the winter, but uh, I'm more of a fair-weather fly fisher. <laughs> but, uh, in fact, I was just uh, down to the, um, uh, the lake that's just down the hill from me because we had a fish kill, and I posted this on Facebook. But... Uh, uh, the lake's the ice is just about halfway off the lake, but we got a hundred trout down there floating belly up. And, oh man! Uh, we're thinking it's uh, maybe an oxygen problem or something. So um, do that. Uh, yeah. So I've got uh, I've got two. Um, uh, so I was reaching out to get people's opinion on what that might be. I've got two answers here so far. Phil in Kentucky, uh, you say nibble and contraband crab. Uh, the fly is right. The nibble is not. It's not what I was looking for. Uh, oh, this might be too hard. <laughs> it was early on, and uh, but I kind of struck me because I paid attention after that to everything else you said because of that. Uh, precision feeders. And it's, it's, a, and it's nope, a very important yeah, 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 I think so, too. Matt Fugazi says, precision feeders and no name. Nope. Uh, oh, I think we might have one here. How about visual feeders and a no-name shrimp? Will that work for us, Cody? I think that'll work. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, John so. Young. Uh, John Young, congratulations. Um, yeah, a visual feeders, and Cody talked about that the whole night. Really, I mean, he didn't say visual, but maybe once. But um, but that's what uh, but that's what he was talking about. So um, so congratulations um, on winning that. I will. Oh, send me your um, send me your your address, your shipping address, John. Uh, I do have your email address here and your name. I need your shipping address and send that. And you can send it in the same form you just sent in. Put that information in there, and then we'll, I'll get this. Uh, I'll get the um, list of books sent out to you tonight, and then you can uh, pick one, and I'll send that out to that address. So that's how that works. So thanks everybody for playing and listening tonight, and thank you, Cody, for sharing your your expertise. Uh, you're just super thorough tonight. I really appreciate that, and I know our audience did too. So thank you so much for uh, taking your time out of your day to do this for us. And thank you, Roger. I really appreciate it. You know, it, it, it is a real honor to be on the show, and I'm glad that, that um, you know, I can offer something to your listeners, but I really appreciate what you're doing and the information that you get out there. Again, it's an honor. Yeah, well, great. Thank you. I appreciate that as well. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll see you down there. We're, we're doing a trip down there because I have some friends down there in Cape Coral and Clearwater, so i got to get down to your part of the country one of these days. So uh, I may be on your doorstep one of these days. <laughs> Okay, all right. Um, hopefully all of you have found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link at the top of the, the menu, and you'll find that podcast archive. Over 300 shows now in the archive. Uh, you can search by any kind of keyword for type of species, you know, trout, tarpon, uh, now sheep's head, and, uh, or a particular fishery or techniques, your own nymphing. Check it all out. Do a search, and you'll be surprised at what you find there. Our next broadcast will be on... No, that's not right. I just looked at the date I wrote down. It's going to be on April 8th, April 8th. Um, and that show, I'm going to interview Matt McCannell. And the topic of the show will be Tailwaters of the Uncompagri River.
Matt is a professional guide and is going to introduce us to the tailwaters of the Uncompahgre River, also called Paco. And, on, and it's on the western slope of the Colorado Rockies. Uh, and this tailwater yields incredible trophy browns and rainbows. Uh, browns exceeding the 20-pound mark have been caught, and they lurk in the shadows and boulders of stumps and, uh, and, and so forth in, in the river. So join us, and Matt's going to guide us down the river and share his secrets to catching some of these monster fish. So be there and uh, listen in. We'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Douglas Outdoors, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well